All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here. You can watch, listen in, or subscribe for free on RT.ie, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. At the time of recording, the Republic of Ireland men's manager has yet to be announced, but the women's team are about to return to action, and we've had the big kickoff in the League of Ireland Premier and First Divisions, plus the Champions League last 16 first legs continue, and we'll have a live game for you on Tuesday night. Now, to talk about that and more, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by RT Sports' Anthony Pine and former St. Pat's Shamrock Rovers, Bolton, Hibbs and Preston striker Owen Doyle. And welcome, both of you. Um, hope you're both keeping well. All good, all good. Good stuff. And uh, Owen, I suppose it's the first time uh, you're on the pod with us. Uh, so how has retirement been treating you? Because it's about it's sort of six months now since you finished up with Pat's. Yeah, it was summertime, yeah. About six months now, so... um. No, it's been good. It's been good. I haven't missed it, which is a good sign, I suppose. Um, I'm glad that the, the football's back now, the League of Ireland. I've become a fan, so I've been up to Tallaght for the last two weeks and, and enjoy bringing the kids up there to watch the game. So, it's um, no, it's good. Yeah. And on the uh, Ireland managerial search now that we just we might as well just get stuck in because this saga, you know, there was uh, the talk of Lee Carsley at the start of last week, potentially still being on the cards. Shea Given on the telly then on uh, last Tuesday night essentially said that he doesn't think that's going to happen. Brian Kerr reiterated it then the following day. And then at the weekend, the name Chris Coleman has emerged out of the blue as uh, potentially being the next manager. Now, we Nothing is confirmed. We don't know what's going on. But, you know, from your vantage point, what have you made of it all? Um, I don't know there's been so much noise regarding it and obviously lots of lots of um, negativity towards the FEO, I suppose, and the way it's kind of been approached and and why it's been it's took so long. But if I'm being honest, look, I think they've kind of gone about it the right way. They're taking their time, they're doing some proper due diligence, I'd imagine. They're interviewing a lot of people. Um and any noise that's been coming out of it, it's very unique. You usually when a, a manager leaves, another one comes straight in relatively quick after. Kind of in a weird situation here where it's friends of potential candidates are going on to the telly and kind of saying whether they are going to get the job or not. Or and some of them, some of the candidates are working in the media themselves. So it's um it's very unique. It's something I've never seen before. Regarding the next appointment, I don't really think the person that gets the job is that important in the sense of whoever whoever get. I think the the manager of the the national team in four years time will be far more important to me than this manager now. I think we're kind of at a, a bit of a transitional period regarding the the players we have at our disposal at international level to qualify for tournaments. So. Me personally, the manager that comes in, I hope, is a good character, is able to kind of play the press and downplay expectations because realistically, if we were to start qualifying for tournaments, it'll be a bit of a miracle in my eyes when you see the, the standard of uh, the other international teams. Um, so yeah, the a character over, ability now for me, people that, uh, someone that can kind of play the media, keep your keep you guys, I suppose, on the back foot and not putting <laughs> too much pressure on the, on the team, yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully not too far on the back foot for from our point of view. But uh, just a final one on, say, if it you know Chris Coleman's name has emerged, and obviously from your time playing uh, across the water, what would what's his sort of reputation in terms, especially from the club side of things? Obviously, we saw what he did with Wales, and you know he had a great time of it, taking him to the semi-finals in Euro twenty sixteen. But from what you would hear um, behind the scenes at different clubs, uh, what's the what's the sense of what he's about? Yeah, so like. I was touching on a character there previously when we were speaking about the next manager and he certainly is one by all accounts. I've heard some great stories of his like halftime team talks and stuff like that over the years when he was Coventry manager and 
had a few friends that played under him at Sunderland. So um, and that didn't end well, but the, I think the club itself wasn't in a, in a great spot. So it was a difficult situation for everyone up there at the time. Um, obviously, we'd all look back at, our, at his Wales situation and, and hope that that's something he could do for us if he was to come in. Um, we don't have a Gareth Bale though, unfortunately. So it's um, this as I said, this manager managerial appointment for me isn't that important. It's it's about someone that's able to come in, kind of keep playing or, or come in and try and play to our strengths, and um, get these young players that we have coming through, getting loads of experience at international level to kind of in three or four years time to be really pushing for tournaments yeah and I will see there, there might be an announcement in the next week or so but we'll, we'll have to see just on Chris Coleman being sort of like a special character that was a, like I remember doing an interview with Thomas Rosinski the former Everton Fulham striker and also would have been at Anderlecht and uh, the one thing he only remembers from Fulham is he absolutely loved Chris Coleman uh, called him a special character and uh, just felt like he was a brilliant man manager for whatever that's worth obviously the FAR are looking for more of a training ground head coach but and Coleman apparently doesn't really fit that bill but we'll see where that goes but Anthony in terms of the, the women's team that's a lot more crystal clear we know the friendlies that are coming up so Friday the 23rd um, so this Friday in Florence they're up against Italy and then the following Tuesday they're uh, playing Wales in Tala and uh, can you just give us a little bit of a update on the squad because a couple of players have pulled out and so the the makeup of the midfield is going to look a little bit different well yeah I mean Denise O'Sullivan is, is the big one she's out with a knee injury um, uh, as is Tyler Tolan so the two of them were you know automatic starters throughout the Nations League campaign so we'll be missed but you know thankfully they're, they're missing two friendlies as opposed to qualifiers, which begin in April. Ireland will find out in March who, who they're going to be up against in, in those games. They'll be in a four-team group uh, for the qualifiers. And even if they finish bottom of that group, Raft, they're guaranteed a place in the playoffs because they got promoted in the Nations League. So um, more no, more fresh faces in this squad. Um, Eileen Gleeson's brought up Jess Fitzgerald. She's only 17. She plays with P-Mount United. Very, very talented uh, young midfielder. Uh, Emily Murphy is an England underage international, but she's obviously eligible for Ireland as well. Her father is, is Irish and uh, she's a striker. She's playing in the States, but she came through the ranks at Chelsea. Uh, well regarded, you know, loads of potential. So it'll be interesting to see if she uh, gets gets a chance. I'm not sure where she is in terms of clearance to actually play. I'd say they're trying to get it over the line ahead of Friday. Um, so there'll be, you know, there'll be changes and, and she'll probably look at a few things. But uh, they're two good friendlies and, and it's just it's her last chance to, to sort of fine-tune preparation for those qualifiers. And there's quite a bit going on, Raf, because she's only just finalised her backroom team, Colin Healy. Um, I'm sure Owen will have come across Colin. Again, he's, he's done, he was great reputation in the game and was really popular among the players. Uh, he, he was part of the interim management team throughout the Nations League. And Emma Bourne, who's an absolute icon, you know, among those players too. So they're staying on along with a Welsh coach called uh, Rhys Carr. Um, he, he's been brought onto the coaching ticket and, um, you know, it's part of this new sort of way of doing things with the Ireland women's team, uh, whereas Eileen is now sort of regarded as a head coach above this structure below her. And they'll all have, they'll probably take charge of individual components in the team, midfield, defence and, and attack. And um, she'll be sort of uh, delegating more as opposed to what we saw under, say, Vera Powell, who was sort of controlled every aspect of, of what was going on all the way down to strength and conditioning and diet, you know, all that type of stuff. So 
Um, look, it's interesting times. There's also questions around, I did have to field questions today around her old job, which is the head of women's and girls football, which is a really important role in Irish football, really important, because we're at a period now where that side of the game here is growing hugely and very, very quickly. Uh, it's currently not being filled. Eileen was in that role. She got promoted to the to the management position. Um, there was reports last week that the FAI, it's not a permanent role now. It's a fixed term role, and we don't know how long the fixed term would be. Um, so it's led to questions around Eileen. Is she gonna? She's her contract is for two years as manager. She's gonna spend two years as manager and then return to the to the head of women's and girls role that she previously had. And and she basically just didn't want to address that today. She wants to focus on the game. So we don't know. There's there's not much clarity around that. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see how that sort of plays out. But as of now, that that, that position isn't filled. Um, it just means that she's kind of in a little bit of an awkward situation again because when she was the interim manager, she kept having a few questions about whether she was interested in taking the job permanently. And she, she couldn't really answer it because she didn't want to compromise the process. She knew the search was ongoing. And uh, it's, it feels sort of similar again here. If she's had to bat these questions away. But anyway, look, generally on the pitch, they're, they're in rude health. They have a very strong, deep squad. Um, and it's two good friendlies for them. Italy and Wales, you know, Italy are, are a good side. They're in the top 16 in Europe, ranked in top 16, sorry, top 15 in the world. Um, and Wales are about 34. So uh, two, two stern tests, and they'll probably learn a little bit more about themselves after. Yeah, and bolstered by the returns from injury and Eve Fahey, Ethan Mannion, Leanne Kierden and Jess Sue as well. But the one I had that I was a bit interested in maybe chatting to you a little bit about was Amber Barrett, because of course, look, her name is always going to be up in lights in terms of Irish women's football history, given the goal um, she scored in, in Glasgow to, to to get us to the World Cup. Um, her position in the squad has been sort of under question, just not so much even based on her club form, which actually seems to be pretty good, but it, it was ever since she went to Belgium and and yeah, I suppose towards the latter end last year as well, she kind of slipped off the radar when it came to Eileen Gleeson's choices up front. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's just competition for places. Like after the World Cup, you know, when they sat down and, and discussed how that went, the FBI and, and Mark Cannon, the director of football, and um, they spoke to Eileen as well when she took on the job initially in, in an interim role. Like they, they felt the squad was was the average age was too high in the squad because they're looking towards the next two major tournaments. Nobody wants that World Cup to be a one off. You know, Ireland should be getting to the Euros. You know, they should definitely expect to get to the Euros and they should be looking to get to the next World Cup. But they need to reduce the the age profile of the squad because there was just a lot of players the wrong side of thirty. So I think she's just sort of started to hasten the process of giving younger players a chance and particularly younger players based in the League of Ireland. You know, she obviously has been involved in Irish women's football for a long, long time, you know, managed in the league. Uh, as I mentioned, she was the head of women's and girls football, so she knows it inside out. And what you're seeing is players like Erin McLaughlin, who actually is, you know, Amber Barrett is Erin's idol. She's, a, you know, she, they're both from Donegal. Uh, huge influence on her on her career, but like Erin is is getting a chance at the expense of of Amber in the, in the previous squads in the Nations League. Uh, I just I just think it's it's competition for places. That's all it is. You know, Amber needed a move uh, away from Jeremy. She didn't have a good time there, but she's 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 happy in in Belgium. She's playing well. Clara Reardon is there with her, a standard age, um, and you know she'll get her chance. She's back in the squad for this camp, so you know she'll get minutes on the pitch. But she's the same as every other player. Like I, I think at every 
there's only maybe, you know, Denise O'Sullivan, Katie McCabe, Louise Quinn, Courtney Brosnan, um, maybe a couple others that you would say are definitely guaranteed, you know, they're nailed on to start most games. And then after that, it's really toss of a coin. Like there's a lot of players that are, are scrapping for positions, which is healthy as well. So yeah, look, I'm sure she's she's mad to get a chance uh, and and probably prove a point to Amber Barrett, and um, I'm sure she will in the next couple of games, and and we'll see if she takes it. Yeah, indeed, and of course, just a reminder of those games. So it is Italy on Friday in Florence, and then Wales in Tala uh, next Tuesday. Now, uh, the SSE Electricity Men's Premier Division and First Divisions returned, and it was the big kickoff on Friday. And the results from the Premier Division were Bohemians two, Sligo Rovers two, Derry City beat Drogheda United two one, uh, Pats one one nil away at Galway United, Shamrock Rovers and Dundalk in the TV game live on RT two and the RT player. They shared the spoils one all draw there and then Waterford and Shelburne also drew one all as well but we'll start on Dundalk and uh, Shamrock Rovers is drawn Tala but first let's listen to Stephen O'Donnell he was just talking about the Dundalk performance and also how happy he was with the performance of Myoa and Imeshahoon. We looked to threaten the counter uh, Shamrock Rovers are a good team they, they have lots of options um, and you know it's not it's not often people come here and come away with with the point, so we're happy with that. It's a it's a building block, but ultimately we want to get to a place where we're coming here and going to everywhere and, and playing at home that we're disappointed when it with a draw, it's two points dropped. So um I think we're on the right path for that. Stephen, finally, Andy Boyle got the man of the match from Kenny Cunningham, but the player alongside him as well, homegrown if you like, uh, Mayo uh, Anamasha Hoon had a super game. Yeah, excellent. I thought two of them done really well. Uh as I said, Maya was thrown in from like in, in at the deep end. His, his first his first full start uh, didn't play at all last season, and then you're you're playing centre half um, at Tala first game of the season. I thought he I thought he was excellent. He handled himself really really well, and you can see what a specimen he is. And you know um, has all the attributes to really go far. So that is Dundalk head coach Stephen O'Donnell there speaking to Tony O'Donoghue after that one all draw. And Owen, um, you know, looking at that Dundalk performance, I think beforehand the suggestion would have been Shamrock Rovers look really strong they're, they're you know they're at home they've strengthened really well Dundalk have made 11 changes to their squad during the during the off season and it might take them a little bit of time uh, to gel together but they were really really impressive throughout especially on the break yeah absolutely and the um like there was a lot of unknowns out on the pitch there there's a few players that none of us kind of really knew what they were gonna what they're gonna be like um, and I was very impressed with them all especially the two fullbacks were excellent I thought Walker was excellent left back for them um and obviously Scott Hoy in the middle of the pitch was was very good. He he didn't see much of the ball, but when he did, you could see he had little moments of calm and like nice little passes and stuff and kept things taking over. But um like Dundalk will believe they're disappointed. Like the football football matches are won and lost in moments and they obviously went one 0 up and then they hit the post to go two 0 up just after half time and, and Roberts then kinda equalized shortly after that. And if they had to put that in the back of the net it would have been it would have been a different outcome, I'd imagine. But um Rovers are still very strong. They dominate a lot of the ball. Um, Dundalk had to work really, really hard for that point. And um, and they've so much like their squad is so deep. They've got so many great players still to come into it. So, um, I've no doubt to be picking up more wins than than draws anyway as the season goes on. Yeah, and on the uh, you know, the free kick that Jamie Gullen scored, like it was a obviously well taken and everything else. There's obviously a lot of focus on Leon Leon Poles um in terms of replacing Alan Manis long term um after Manis's retirement. What did you make of that? Because I know there was a bit of focus on Poles and maybe that he could have done better as well, uh, in terms of actually making the save and actually preventing Gullen from scoring that free. 
Yeah, I suppose we're all looking. There's a, across the whole league, we're all looking to see how the goalies really do. I think. Um, but yeah, he it was he had nothing to do in the whole match. Neither keeper had much to do in the whole match. Um, and yeah, for me, he should probably get a hand to it at the at the least. It kind of goes in centrally enough. But um, but he'll learn from that. And for other moments that he he had to do, he done well. He made a good save from Dart Hogan from distance, and um. Yeah, he'll learn from it. Like, I'm sure he might have positioned himself differently when he's lining up free kicks now going forward. He obviously hasn't played an awful lot of matches as a, as a, as a number one um, and he's not the club a good, good number of years now. So he'll need time to to, to settle in, I suppose, and, and try to gain some confidence. But um, I think he'll look back at that himself and think he should have, he should have done a bit better, yeah. But like from Dundalk's point of view, you look at the... There was obviously two big moments in the match, the free kick to go one. I look, Daryl Horgan's was playing centrally a lot for the first half. He went, wins the free and then for the for the second moment Dundalk had was when they hit the post. It was great play down the right but Daryl again he puts in a beautiful cross and O'Kane hits the post. Um as I said earlier that could have changed the outcome of the match but I think for, for Dundalk keeping Daryl Horgan fit and keeping him playing with confidence is going to be huge for them. Yeah, and let's listen to Shamrock Rovers manager Stephen Bradley. Now, he was given an update on Neil Farouge's injury. Um, there was some suggestion it might have been a, a broken uh, collarbone, but he actually clarifies what, what the injury actually was. And then also Aaron Green's impact before he made uh, or before he scored the equaliser. How significant was the Neil Farouge injury? And uh, I, I'm hearing that it's not collarbone now, it is, it is a dislocated shoulder. So can you bring us up to date now he is? Yeah, I've just heard that was dislocated. Uh, they've relocated him back when he was in the hospital and he should get out tonight. So, thankfully, it's uh, it's not collarbone, so he should be okay. How much of a difference did that make to you? And, of course, the, the man you brought on to, to replace him had to go off pretty soon afterwards as well. Yeah, I think it was more um, the time of the stoppage. It was 10 minutes and it, it really took the momentum out of the game. We were really playing well at that stage. And uh, and then it was a pretty even game after Neil went off until uh, until half time and then second half we were a lot better but it definitely took the momentum out of us. You've a lot of young players come in. You were freshening it up. You said, but it was Aaron Green who came on and I suppose turned the game in many ways for you. Yeah, he was unlucky not to start. Aaron, he's been brilliant all pre-season. We know what he gives us, um, and and he gave us that energy in the second half, and and uh, which allowed us to play hard at the pitch. He he was very very good. So that is Stephen Bradley there, and just on Neil Fruge's injury, own. I mean, he's you know his qualities are very apparent. Uh, you know, in those those kind of wide spaces, his speed and his power as well. How big a blow is that? Um, I know that their squad is very deep, but he does bring some unique characteristics. Yeah, of course, there's not much pace and power in the league, and Neil has that in abundance. He's um when he gets when he gets the other side of a player, there's no catching him. So um, but obviously, unfortunately, he's had a he's had a tough time with injuries throughout his career so far. But I think he needs to take confidence out with this one in the sense that it's it's a dislocated shoulder. It's not so muscular. It's just an unfortunate um accident that's kind of unfortunately played out for him. But he can he doesn't need to look at this as on or setback really in the sense of it's not as muscle it's not as body's breaking down and I'm ranting like that this is just a one of them unfortunate situations but obviously for the for Clark then to come on and replace him and have to go off again it was he was himself coming back from a recent injury is um is unfortunate unfortunate for them definitely yeah and then uh, Derry City's match as well they beat Drada 2-1 and you know uh, I think pre-season the sense when Patrick Hoban was brought in it was about making a difference in games like this and he does exactly that and I guess for for, for yourself as a as a for, you know former striker uh, you'd probably appreciate the movement uh, that he showed for the the rebound the goal well the second goal um which ultimately proves to be the winner before um, obviously Drada uh, pulled one back later with a brilliant goal from Evan Weir 
Yeah, absolutely. He's um he's got that instinct, the, the striker's instinct. It was a it was a great strike by patching him. Um Logan obviously made a good save, but parried it into the middle of the into the middle of the, the box and, and there was Hope and he was left unmarked at the time. He's I think one of them like centre backs in this league need to realise like under no circumstances when Patrick Hobbins in the box, do you ever ever leave him unmarked? Even when you think the ball's gone out of play because as what happened with that shot, Patching's a good strike. Logan parries it out, but Hobbins on his toes and he, he like a proper instinct of Poacher's goal. It was a it was a great little finish. And to get that goal in your debut early in the season, it'll take a lot of pressure off him, off Pat himself and fill him with confidence going forward, definitely. Yeah, and uh, Pat's also off to win and start uh, winning Galway. And um, even just looking at the highlights, the the conditions didn't look uh, uh, particularly good for a, a nice game of football. But uh, Pat's Pat's got through it. Uh, Galway are going to be a tough nut to crack there as well. And of course, they had Stephen Wall sent off near the end as well for dissent, which uh, didn't help their cause. But uh, you know, from what's your thoughts on Pat? You've been very close to that squad at least uh, up until very very recently, and they have strengthened well. They've lost a, a few key players. I think the right back area is one where there's a lot of focus as well. But obviously, getting off to a great start is really good. But in terms of their longer term prospects, uh, what do you make of it? No, I think they've strengthened. I know they've lost um Sam, Cortis and, and Murphy and um Tommy Lonigan, but I think they've actually strengthened this year. If you look through the whole squad, I think it's a it's a little bit deeper, it's got more strength there. Regarding the right back um situation, obviously Sam's obviously gonna be a big loss. He's one of our upcoming stars in the country, so we're all hoping he does very well over there. But um they've actually got two very good right backs at the club in, in Axel Sauberg and Ryan um, McLaughlin. So it's just a matter of keeping them fit about have gone through a bit of a Neil Ferruja kind of situation as well themselves in the last year or so. So they're um if they can keep them fit, they'll be all right in that position. But um obviously the conditions looking back at the highlights of it looked looked awful. It was a tough L, tough L match. And um, not much quality on the pitch really, I wouldn't imagine, due to the conditions. But um to get the early goal, they hang on and um, to be fair to Galway, like they asked lots of questions, they put lots of balls in the box, but when you've got Joe Redmond and and Keeley there to to head balls out. It's a it's a great the great asset to have for the club having them two back there. Good clean sheet for the keeper on um as well up there like a tough night not in the Presidents Cup but coming out of there be good for him. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, like and listen, I played in Joseph and Ang's first match in the Presidents Cup as well, and he, he didn't have a great night that night. He went on to do great stuff for for the club throughout the season and. And he, this guy they've got from Liverpool, he's got a good pedigree. Everyone speaks highly of him over there and stuff. So I'm excited to see what he can do. It was a bad Illinois from Antalya last week, but he, um, they've been telling me there that he's been doing well so far. He comes and collects things from corners and crosses, and that gives you, that gives defenders great confidence as well. So, um, he'd be delighted with that coming out of there in them conditions, keeping a clean sheet when the the ball's being bombarded into the box, and you see the highlights. God, we did pummel the ball in a lot. So, um, now it's good for. Him. Yeah, and actually, just on on the the goalkeeper thing, um, you know, like as you mentioned, the Anang thing from the Presidents Cup a couple of years ago, where he, you know, he starts off not particularly well, and then he sort of grows into it. You know, as I suppose outfield teammates, do you sort of rally around them, or do you just, in a way, do you just kind of leave them, leave them on their own, and just kind of trust that they'll, you know, they'll bounce back? I know you you kind of leave him alone and let him and let him do his own on thinking on it. He the goalies you have to remember like, and Joe, Joe was in the same position when he first came over here is he probably never played in a game like that in Tala like 8,000 fans probably Joe at the time he was over probably six, 7,000 fans at the match in 10th uh, you've got all the Rovers fans behind you like, I can imagine there's a bit of abuse going on there and stuff and great learning course for these young goalies coming over I know when West Ham were coming over to watch Joe play in Richmond they loved it especially in the Dublin derbies because 
you could have bows or shells or rovers behind the goal and they're literally two yards from you and that's intense proper atmosphere if you can get through games keep clean sheets make some good saves but taking on this abuse and these learnings it's uh, it's really good for young goalies and it's a great it's a great league for that for um especially for the young goalies coming over from England and stuff for it's great learning for them to, to come over here and experience these atmospheres and and try to do well but yeah. he'll be okay he'll be okay he's got he's 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 going to be a good goalie I think yeah and Anthony you were uh, watching Waterford and Shells for us on uh, on Friday night and uh, you know Waterford from again looking from the chances they created they looked really bright especially in the first half um shells got back into it then through sean boyd who then later got um you know got sent off but what did you make of the shells template actually uh was it was it more the same just trying to be you know extremely organized and then trying to hit on the break or did you see some sort of evolution with some of the players they brought in yeah they they were kind of out shells by waterford <laughs> in, in the first half Um, it's interesting you know Actually, just to roll back on something I'll mention there that um he didn't like there's not much pace in the league or power. I don't know. Did you notice that all when he came back to to Pats like as opposed to the leagues in England? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was the biggest. There was nothing no difference in technical ability with players and stuff. Players in this in the in our league here, great technical ability, but the athleticism and the pace is something that's not quite here yet compared to compared to over there, definitely. And I know you're gonna to touch on SMO's goal. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah Sargent obviously does well. He comes and collects from the wide free kick and puts a lovely, lovely uh, ball straight into his path. And, and you can see him just outpaced Lunny. And he, he, once he got going, there was no stopping him. And he got a little bit lucky with the finish, but it was it was a great to see him. But there's nothing better when you, have, when you have a player in your team that has pace and he knows how to use it. And he certainly knew how to use it in that situation. He just opened his legs and went for it and got the reward at the end. Yeah, it's it's just I mean it's just as own says. I mean that's that's the thing you take away from it. Asamoah, who actually wasn't massively involved, but every time he had a bit of grass to run into, like his pace is unbelievable, Raf. And you just think like that potentially could be a, a serious weapon for Waterford. They like I think there was from the tip off, um, so Shell's tipped off, and I think it was Ryan Burke. I think it was Ryan Burke or uh, Niall O'Keefe actually was one of their midfielders absolutely steamed into a tackle like two seconds on the clock man on ball and that just set the tone for the first half they were really aggressive well set up as you'd expect you know from by Keith Long and they've got some good players um, Asamoah is just such a, an out ball for them uh, Connor Parsons had a good game Barry Bagley is, is, a, is a really nice player um, and then, you know, you got the likes of Grant Horton came off the bench, you know, so there is a bit of depth there as well. I think Waterford are going to be, I mean, it's really difficult to call who's actually going to go down this year or even be scrapping around the bottom two or three. It really is like, and it, it certainly hasn't become clearer after the first night because Waterford were excellent. I think what got Shells out of tri- uh, jail on Friday was their bench. They, they have they have a good bench and and they I think Damien Duff made, I think he made five subs um, and they did... You know, um, Jarvis was really good when he came on. Sean Boyd got the goal. I think if Boyd didn't get sent off, because it was 10 minutes of stoppage time, I think if he didn't get sent off, they, they may have gone on to win it. it. They had momentum at that stage. They they It took them an hour, um, but they did come into it and they, they were on top. But it would have been tough on Waterford. Waterford were worth the point. And I just, I just think it'd be interesting to keep it, to see how Asamoah does this year, because just as Owen says, like any... It's not just pace, but knowing how to use it. Like he's given, he knows he can give a lot of players a two yard head start and he can still beat them. All he has to do is just shoot the ball past them. 
and he's strong as well. Um, you know, and and he's he's not a bad footballer. He's he's potentially a massive weapon, particularly if they're going to play a lot of games, sort of with five at the back or you know four and and maybe two sitting like deep, compress you know make themselves really difficult to break down. And then what an outball this guy like just knock the ball into space, and he is going to at the very least put a pressure on the fullback to concede a throw in or a corner or something that he doesn't want to do. Like, and obviously there was the crowd get up then. There was a great crowd at the RSC. So it was a good night for them. I enjoyed it now. I have to say that was, a, it was a really good battle. Um, And, you know, Damien Duff, I think said afterwards that he, he was disappointed with his team's display. I think that there's more in shells for sure, but in fairness, they, it wasn't made easy for them, you know, really wasn't. And I think the big positive for them is that they didn't get bet. You know, they, they found a way to get out of there with a point and, and get, get themselves off the mark. Yeah, some of Damien Duff's comments afterwards were kind of funny as well in terms of the, the Ireland managerial search. I think he referred to uh, how it's gone on as embarrassing um, as well. And he did suggest also that he had been uh, not approached directly, but there had been some contact, but he's not interested. He's uh, very much uh, committed to, to Shelburne. The other bit of news from that, Romeo Akachukwu in that game as well. Look, obviously, a young teenager at Waterford's part of the Ireland under 17s last, uh, last summer in the European Championships. It looks like he's going to be on the way to Southampton for around 500,000 and he's picking that club over some of the more illustrious uh, clubs that have been interested in him just with because there's more of a promise for game time uh, apparently but uh, the final game we're going to talk about is uh, Bohemians 2 Sligo Rovers 2 and Bows get off to a good start with uh, Sten Reinhardt the new striker uh, the Estonian international that they brought in scoring but then um, Owen, I mean, Sligo will come away with this from this game, I guess, a little bit disappointed that they conceded very late on, um, especially all the pressure they have been, you know, that they seem to be under in terms of that a lot of people expect them to be scrapping in and around the bottom. And yet they, you know, they they went, they turned that game around, they made it 2-1 um, for a long stretch. Hartman scores a lovely goal, great feat. So it, it's there's a there's a few positives there, at least uh, from, you know, from John Russell's point of view. Oh, absolutely. But as you said, when you when you can see in the ninety fourth minute, you kind of you're always going to come away feeling, God, that's two points dropped there. And and in the minute that it was, I think like Clark, who's going to be such a huge player for balls this season, he picks the ball up deep and he he starts the move, passes it wide, and just sends into the box, uh, unmarked, and then obviously finishes with a great header. And I think Johnny will look back on that and be disappointed in his team not kind of marking the run and, and staying with him into the box to make sure he doesn't get on the end of things because he's he's such a threat for balls. But um, now Sligo obviously off to a, a really good start and some wonderful, both of their goals were, were good and now Hutchinson's was a bit unfortunate in the sense of kind of ricocheted off him and went over the, over the goalie and in, but it was lovely play up to that. And um, and then obviously Harman did a skill, a bit of quality from the corner and dribbles through three or four players and when you're in them tight positions inside the box, one of the best things you can do is aim for the goalie's legs and he did that and it went through his legs and um, and into the and into the goal. So, um, no, I think Sligo, obviously, it would be nice, considering where everyone kind of thinks they'll be at the bottom half of the table this year, it would be nice if they were able to pick up the three points. They will feel like it's two points dropped, but um, but they can't take confidence out of it, definitely. Yeah, and obviously Max Mata as well, who was signed just before that uh, that opening match as well. So he's returned to the club on a short-term loan from Shrewsbury, and he's going to be here until uh, the English pre-season, and that's sort of where we're at. And then Bowes on top of it as well, they had the, the good news last week where they were given the green light to redevelop Dalyman Park um, after the plans were ratified at a Dublin City Council meeting last Monday night. The ground, if and when completed, will have a capacity of just over 8,000, so that's 6,240 seats and 1,790. 94 standing and you know the 
in the stadium, you know, the development stadiums, that's going to be a huge part in terms of developing the game here, Owen. But from your point of view, even as a player, you know, there's a lot of focus on trying to make it a hospitable environment for, for supporters to come in and even for, you know, from a media point of view. But as a player, like you've played, you've played in England in some great stadiums. How much of a difference does it make? Uh, you know, walking onto a pitch and or even, you know, walking into a dressing room where, you know, the facilities are up to scratch and, you know, the I mean, you know, you're you've you've, you know, a full stadium of whatever it is, like we're talking about eight thousand capacity here. Does it make much of a difference to you as a player kind of walking into that environment? Definitely before and after the game it does. Um it's a good little confidence when you're going into a stadium and you you feel like you belong in this great arena and stuff and and that can do you wonders of confidence and stuff. But like when you're when you're on the pitch and you're on the grass and it's eleven v eleven, you're just playing a game of football and all the noise kind of stops and you're just in the moment. But um, now it's great to see that this these things are starting to happen in the country now. You can see hopefully Daily Mount gets done quicker than than we'd like. Um, in the sense, I hope it's not like twenty thirty two or something before it's built. I hope it's in the next couple of years and they really get going with it. Um. And it'll be great. It'll be great for them. It'll be great for the league. We need more better facilities here for for fans. They sell out every week now, um. They they need a bigger, bigger attendance coming through the gate there, and um. And it's exciting times for the league. Like I've, I've said this when the first came back, and it's definitely the league's definitely on the up. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it in twenty years time, and hopefully we have loads of more stadiums in the caliber of of Tala around the country, and we can go into these match match day experiences that are really good and enjoyable. Yeah, and uh, the upcoming fixtures in the Premier Division. So, Brody and I are going to be playing Waterford, Dundalk are going to be playing Galway, Shelburne against Shamrock Rovers, St. Pat's against Bowles, and Sligo Rovers against Derry City. That's going to be next Saturday, or this Saturday coming, should I say. And then the first division results, uh, that also kicked off. UCD won 2-1 away at Bray Wanderers, Cork City beat Kerry 2-0, Treaty United were 3-1 winners over Cove Ramblers and then Athlone beat uh, Wexford 3-0 on the Friday and then Saturday Finn Harps were 3-2 winners away at Longford Town and one of the things that stood out after the game actually was the comments of Longford Town manager Stephen Henderson who was speaking to Owen Kowser and this was in and around why they prefer to play their home games on a Saturday and what he said was the thing I've always maintained is the first division should be played on a Saturday every team should play Saturday it's not just about football there's so many different things in life and one is we need players who can get time off on a Friday to travel to games it is something I feel should be looked at because I know of lads who have missed exams because they had to get to games which isn't fair I hear this nonsense that if you want to play in the League of Ireland you have to make sacrifices they make enough sacrifices already and uh, the one thing he clarified afterwards just on on twitter was that he doesn't expect a change a wholesale change to a saturday to happen but uh own for yourself i know the premier division was slightly different in that it's more full time but uh there were still a, a few um you know like draw united would have been part-time um last season and still are this season but what do you make of Stephen Henderson's argument there in regards to this, uh, you know, Saturday possibly being a, a better night, particularly in the first division level? Yeah, it was something I never really thought about until I seen his comments there on the weekend. And it makes sense from his from his point of view. I can understand that he wants his players to be as fresh as possible going into a match. And especially for the likes of a Longford where they wouldn't have many locals playing, they'd be... They'd have a lot of lads travelling from Dublin and other other areas to go up and play for them and stuff. And um, for him, for lads not to be having to get off work early or try to get the work done earlier in the day, which adds extra stress and um, tires the body out more. So as you could say, it would be would be more beneficial for the for the teams um, that are part time to to maybe play on the Saturdays in that sense. That it'll it'll definitely help their recovery if they were relatively fresh going into matches instead of having to 
be doing doing your nine to five grind on a on a Friday before a match and, and trying to get off earlier to play the to play the match and maybe travel half the country to do it. It's not it's not easy on lads, definitely not. Yeah, and then just a word on Cork City and obviously Tim Clancy, who you've worked with. Um, you know that's a you know he's been he's been he's he has the experience of bringing a club up from the first division. So Cork City have somebody with a huge amount of experience there. He won't be really judged on matches against Kerry, given where Kerry are at. But um, what's your sense of Cork City with uh, with him and with him in charge now for the season? Yeah, obviously the fact that he's done it before with Trotter is a great. Is a is great for for Cork to know, I suppose. But he's also got a great pedigree of bringing young lads through. And I think on the match on Friday, five teenagers on the pitch. The Uma came off of, or came off the bench at fifteen years of age. O'Sullivan, the number ten, who's by all accounts going to have a great career. Um, and, and he's trusting these these young lads to go out and play and and to achieve. Like they they have to come back up. They have to try. They have to win that league. There's there's all eyes on them. They're the, they're the big club in the in the league. So. Exciting for Tim, exciting for Cork, exciting for all these young lads coming through as well. Yeah, and Cork are going to be at Finn Harps next. And just interesting comments in the examiner from Finn Harps's commercial officer, Aidan Campbell, uh, where he was talking about their their issue with the new stadium, which is something we, we talked about there with Bowes. If And what he said was, if we do not have a new stadium, we will not have a Finn Harps. The future of the club depends on getting a new stadium. And he also added... We've been living on borrowed time. We are at a crossroads and it's very simple. There has to be a new stadium for there to be a bit of Finn Harps and for there to be senior football. Everyone knows Finn, Har- or Finn Park is not up to spec and it has been going on for too long. Now is crunch time and they're, they're trying to get fundraisers and things uh, to get that uh, over the line as well. But uh, before we go, um, we have live Champions League action on Tuesday night. So that's Inter Milan against Atletico Madrid live on RT2 and the RT player from 7.30pm. And... I suppose, Anthony, a lot of the focus is on the likes of Manchester City and Real Madrid as being the two favourites. I think a couple of people are going to be looking at Arsenal, who I think we'll talk about next. But um, in regard to, you know, Inter, Inter going really well in Serie A and they were, you know, they gave, they, they easily could have won the, the Champions League final last uh, last summer. So they're one that's definitely floating under the radar. Nobody, a team nobody would want to get, I guess. Yeah, they... They are, Ross. Um, they're very, I mean, they're actually arguably in better shape now than they were this time last year, like the top of the league. And um, they're, they play five at the back a lot of the time. So just, you're always looking at who can potentially beat Manchester City. <laughs> like they, they just look like, you know, they are the standard bearers and it's it's still difficult. You know, even if you watch the game against Chelsea, the one-all draw, like just then dropping points in the Premier League feels kind of seismic at this point because this is when they go on their charge, isn't it? Every year they just seem to take off and go up about three levels and blow everyone away. So you're sort of thinking, is there anyone that can put it up to them? I think Inter Milan are one of the few teams, um, Inter Milan and probably Arsenal. I would have said Bayern Munich, but they're, they're sort of um, in turmoil at the minute and maybe looking for a new new manager in the next week. Um which uh, I think at most add uh, might free up Anthony Barry and then yeah. change this Ireland managerial saga yeah, another, <laughs> once another again by yeah. throwing another yeah. name into the mix. Um, yeah, so look, they are they, they are a very very tough nut to crack, um, and I don't think it's going to be a goal fest with Atletico Madrid, but um, you probably fancy them to get through that. And you know, once you get to the quarters, that that point, like they're in it. You know, they are in it because. Um, they're just they're a really good cup team as well. Like I think they've won two two of the last three Italian cups, domestic cups. So they know how to play knockout football. They know how to play two legged football. And I would say they have a very good chance of being there thereabouts again. And I mean, if anyone watched the Champions League final last season, 
there was a kick of a ball in it really like I mean they, they were very very close to bringing that extra time right at the death as well um so yeah they're they're a good side they're a good side and as I said that there's not many teams that I'd fancy to have any chance against Man City over two legs right now but themselves and Arsenal are the two I think that could make it make it a little interesting yeah, they look a lot better with uh, Marcus Turan playing up front uh, as well alongside and sort of as a foil for uh, for Lautaro Martinez and uh, yeah, obviously change a goalkeeper as well. Onana has is uh, now at Man United and uh, Swiss number one is uh, is uh, is in goal for them at the moment. But Arsenal own, I mean, they're they're returning to to European action uh, tomorrow night or oh, sorry on Wednesday night uh, at Porto and Porto aren't going very well in the Portuguese league at the moment. They're they're third, but. Uh, they do seem to be struggling. They're a bit off the pace of the two Lisbon clubs. But from an Arsenal point of view, would you be looking at it and thinking, especially given they've never won the the European Cup or Champions League in either of its guises, that this is a huge opportunity for them? They're they're going really well in the in the Premier League at the moment, and this you know it, it door like the pathway could open to a quarter final or a semi final, especially if they get past Porto and if say City and Real Madrid were to run into each other on one side of the draw. Yeah, absolutely. I think Arsenal are kind of in a position as a football club where they, they can't sacrifice one competition for another because it's not as if they if they were to come out of Champions League early enough that they could concentrate in the Premier League and probably do it. That's not the case with them. They kind of need to stay in everything. They kind of need to stay in everything and try and win everything just to try and get one because um, they can only go a certain amount of years without actually winning a trophy. And to be fair to Arteta, they kind of changed the club around from this kind of, not nearly club, but they're, they're really getting up there and challenging the the top two now, so it's great to see to see another one come into the mix. We used to have it with Chelsea, um. Now Arsenal are kind of the ones kicking on to kind of try challenge against Liverpool and and um and Man City. So it's it's good to see. Regarding the games this week, I think they really need to go to Porto, put on a good performance, and and try get through. And hopefully, they, as you said, get the look at the draw. Yeah, and uh, just on the Premier League title race on top of it as well. So, as you said, you know, the, the top two, which would be City and Liverpool, have sort of been joined by Arsenal now. And there was a, a thing that Opta, um, you know, who do statistical models and that, um, they gave, and this was before um, City dropped points at home to Chelsea. Uh, City have a 65% chance of winning the Premier League title. Liverpool have a 25% chance and then Arsenal on uh, 10%. But where do you, do you, do you kind of, look at it the same way as well that it is sort of cities to lose and that like if if a team is going to uh, if it's one team is going to stop them that is it is going to be liverpool more likely yeah that'd be kind of my outcome yeah that's how how i'd look at it um i was really surprised at chelsea's performance against them the other day i thought they were excellent um but i like city just have that kind of ability to to get over the line and get results and, and they look at that as two points dropped because every every time they drop points they look at them as dropped because they're that good um, but regarding Liverpool, like it depends, like they've got such firepower. They're excellent. You see, Nunes scored a very un Nunes like goal against Brentford the other day, going through and goal and just thinking it over the keeper. But he, um, if they can get him taken and get him amongst the goals, and now he came off injury, uh, injured. Hopefully, it's not as bad as what they as what everyone originally thought. But if they can get him and Jota back on the pitch now, and obviously Salah comes back into the fold. They can really ask a lot of questions. The city, they're the ones to have the points on the board at the minute. Um. City are behind them, so it's uh, when you're looking at the table, Liverpool's definitely to lose right now. But but the the size of City squad, how they play, the fact they've won so many Premier League titles over the last number of years, they'd be certainly favourites in my eyes still. 
Yeah, and uh, just as a striker as well, um, looking at Erling Haaland's performance against Chelsea, so I think there's a lot made about, you know, took about 10 shots uh, without scoring, which is the highest I think he's had since he's come to the Premier League. But there was the interesting comments the previous week that Pep Guardiola had made about his body language. And uh, I was just kind of curious, as a striker, um, do you do you take much or do you do you focus much on your own body language in terms of how you come across to your teammates? Because um, I suppose there's nothing wrong with showing disappointment, like if you've missed a chance or, you know, something something along those lines or if you're frustrated with them. But um, what did you make of that, I suppose, with the with the striker's mind in it as well? I think strikers are so dependent on everyone around them. But they, like if he, if he is showing bad body language, he, sh- he shouldn't in the sense of like, these are the lads that are going to provide the chances for you. You keep this up, they won't they won't cross the ball to you. That type of kind of um, mindset. That's how I would have looked at it over the years. Um, and perhaps Roy Guardiola's right to call that out if that's how he sees it. Um, but regarding the other day, look, I know he, he missed a few chances that you usually didn't expect for him to to bury. But there was nothing. There was no like absolute sitter that he's missed there. Obviously, he had a good chance with a header. Um, just miscued it a bit. And he's such a powerful player, and he's going to score a heap of goals with you now in the end of the season. I've absolutely no doubts about that. Um, and obviously under the guidance of Guardiola where the, there might be a thing there where his ego's getting a bit bigger than there should be no better man to get him back in place Yeah and uh, just uh, you know um, Owen mentioned Darwin Nunes there earlier Anthony but you know it's the converse with uh, with Nunes it seems like he can miss a half full of chances but he, he's sort of quite game and he you know he comes again and again and again and then eventually you know he will he does he does he will find the net Yeah there, there was um Somebody tweeted out like a little animation, like a skit of Darren Newell's where they had him playing pool and he has like, there's a yellow sitting on the lip of the pocket and he, he goes to, to put it and he misses it. And then Mo Salah puts a blindfold on him and uh, he cleans up the table. Like, you know, he, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's such good fun to watch. Um, and you can see why Liverpool fans have stuck with him because like his, his raw ability is, is massive. Like his ceiling is really high. Um, it's it's crazy some of the misses that he's had when you when you look at the type that the finish on Saturday morning was uh, ridiculous. Like if he froze it there just before he chips it, you're, and you you give like an A, B, and C option, nobody's picking what he does. Um, but that's that's part of the fun, I guess. That's why the fans love him so much. Um, actually, uh, to be honest, I think he's I think he's a really really good player. I, I and I do think that people some people have made a comparison to Drogba. You can forget in Drogba's first couple of years at Chelsea. Yeah, he was, he was a bit shaky. Yeah. And and he went through kind of similar things. You know, he endured similar criticism that, that Nunes has had to put up with. And then obviously he, he matures a little bit and he just becomes like this legendary striker for Chelsea. And he could go that way, Raph. You know, he could go that way. He, he just, he had a terrible start. He got sent off on his home debut, if you remember, against Crystal Palace, I think. And you know, last season was a disaster all around for Liverpool. They were they were all at sea. The midfield was, you know, badly needed to be regenerated. And he's benefited from all that, all the energy behind him now, the team being more cohesive and, and fluid. Um, and he's actually, you know, if Liverpool are gonna pull it off and, and win a Premier League, um, he's gonna be massive for them because it looks like Jada is gonna be out maybe for I don't know how long, but that looks bad. The knee hyper extended yeah. knee. Uh, so his 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 role is gonna be even more important. Um, but yeah, he's never not he's never born anyway, Raf. That's for sure. Yeah. 
No, certainly not. And then uh, Manchester United's Rasmus Hoyland on. I mean, he was scoring, you know, you could see the potential in the Champions League. He was scoring there, but then it took him a while to get the first goal in the Premier League. Since then, you know, he's uh, he's been on a magnificent run. And even the, the second goal he scored there um, yesterday for United at Luton, you know, where he just sort of, at first when I looked at it, I just thought he got lucky with the, with the chest. But actually, when you look at it, it's actually, it's a beautifully crafted finish, uh, you know, just the way he almost almost sort of manipulates the ball, which is a very difficult skill, I suppose, to do it off the chest as well. Oh, absolutely. And and I've been very critical of many United signings over the last number of years, and he's certainly not one of them. After signing a very, very young, very all-rounded striker, which are very hard to find. Um, he's got a bit of everything. He's pace, he's power, he can hold it up. He's a good finisher. He's a bit of skill about him. And he's going to be a massive, massive player for United going forward. Um, and I think in this force few months at the club he was being failed by all the players around him you'd have Garnacho a wide or Anthony on the other side and he just ran putting the ball in the box room you could see how frustrated he was getting he was making good runs the ball wasn't coming into him and he stuck with it he kept going he's getting his rewards now he's amongst the goals great finish yesterday when he rounded the keeper and as you said them, he was quick and alert enough to kind of now if this ball's flying at me for the second goal I'll just get something out of my chest and into the bottom corner great stuff yeah, and I suppose a final point before we go. So Evan Ferguson, um, on top of it, has you know he's, there's been a little bit of focus on the sort of lack of goals in recent times. But looking at it, um, it's more he's not exactly he's not missing any major chances. It just seems like the things aren't falling for him, or you know the ball isn't coming to him in the box. And I guess that can be frustrating for for a player. But he's only we've to remember, you know, he's only nineteen years old on top of it. Oh, absolutely, and he's not getting enough minutes either. At, at the minute, he's they they use him sparingly there. He came on yesterday, I think he had 25 minutes. Um, so I wouldn't be judging too much. If he was going five or six games without a goal after playing 90 minutes in each of them, I'd be starting to say, OK, maybe he needs something now, something to go out the back of his shin or something just to give him a bit of confidence. But now he's he, like, he was very unfortunate there against Sheffield United. If, uh, was it Sheffield United? Maybe in the FA Cup a few weeks ago where he, he scored a header but was given his offside. And it was great ball from the box. Towers the ball with a centre-back and buries it. Obviously, he was given offside. But um, now he's going to be a huge talent for this country and for Brighton going forward. Yeah, and for whichever one of Lee Carsley or uh, Chris Coleman or whoever turns up being mad that they know what they're what they're going to be working with, we don't know what's going to happen there. And hopefully by hopefully by the time we're back next week, we'll we'll have an answer to that. Although I don't know, I'm not sure where I'm putting my money at the moment in terms of when when we'll find out. But anyway, Owen Doyle, look, thanks a million for your time today, and Anthony Pine as well. Thanks, Rob. Cheers.